Welcome in to another edition of the Dana and Victory podcast, available on musketeerreport.com and all of your favorite streaming platforms. I am Rick. He is Dan. And Dan, it's been so long we lost our third try host <laughs> of this podcast. Uh, no longer the legend Brian Snow. That's right. Uh, Brian has uh, obviously left 24-7 sports for a new venture, which I think you'll probably be hearing about officially soon. I think if you, you know, know how to use Google, you can probably sort it out yourself. But uh, but yeah, Brian uh, got a really good opportunity and uh, we were hoping to get him on for one last show to wrap up the weird COVID 2020-2021 season, but weren't able to. But just from my own perspective, and I know, Rick, you've talked about Brian's influence on your career, which obviously is, is, is quite significant. But um, I just wanted to say, you know, it's been a pleasure to be able to co-host this show with Brian over the last few seasons. It's really rare to get the opportunity to have somebody with that kind of national profile, that kind of national scope to come on a show like this and talk about Xavier uh, specifically for, you know, an hour every couple of weeks. Uh, and learned a lot from him and uh, really enjoyed doing the show with him over the years. I mean, Snow is truly a one-of-one. There just aren't many people like him. He's so opinionated. He lets you know exactly where he stands on things. He calls you stupid all the time, and it's in the like best way. He is so well-connected and really does know so much about this, but also gives you his real opinion on the matter, and I think that made it entertaining, at least, if nothing else, for our listeners and our readers, and <laughs> the fact that he was so tied into Xavier and got his start with Xavier was really all of your guys' benefit because he stayed with us that long and basically acted like a second daily beat writer on the site and then it obviously was to my benefit because he produced tons of content and dropped tons of information about Xavier on the board fortunately I know some people have been worried about you know what type of information you guys will be getting going forward he didn't die so uh, I do still talk to him pretty much daily so uh, he's sharing things with me and and all that and I'm I'm still able to get some information myself believe it or not but I think we'll be okay on the site but obviously, uh, Snow will be greatly missed, not only on the message board, but also on this podcast. And Dan, I think it'd be a, a good time also to let everyone know that there will be some changes going forward with this podcast as well. This is actually going to be the last edition of the Dana and Victory podcast. We started this back in April of 2012 with oh rants God. about Miguel Cairo and Willie Harris <laughs> And uh, we were trying to implement Reds and Bengals rants into it at times. Uh, we've come a long way since then. The show has certainly evolved over the years. And we didn't do it quite as frequently as we would have liked over the last two seasons as I transitioned to an overnight role at the news station and your family has grown. It's just become really difficult to match well, and you Well, and you covering NKU as well. I mean, yeah. there's just been a lot of... Uh, there's been a lot of, uh, of uh, demands on our time. And to be perfectly honest, uh, I feel like a lot of the sporadic nature of the podcast over the last couple of seasons has been my fault just because it's, uh, it's tough for me to work out with, all, with my travel schedule for work, my kids, et cetera. Um, yeah, I mean, when you talk about nine years, it's pretty wild. I mean, I can still remember you and I sitting in a booth at Rock Bottom you know, right. eight yeah. years ago talking about how we were going to make this thing work. Um, and uh, and I think we've had a we've had a really nice run. I mean, it's been certainly an eventful period in in Xavier history. When you think back uh, to that to that first season that we did it, it was the it was the year that Xavier uh, it was Xavier's last year in the Atlantic Ten, the year they barely went five hundred. Uh, we were talking about Isaiah Fillmore and um, uh, you know uh, speculating whether Samaje Kristen might come back that year. Well, it was uh, one of our after- earliest podcasts was the Des Wells situation. That's right. That's right. So, so when you think about uh, the differences in this program um, from 2012 to now, it's 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 pretty stark. I mean, uh, when we started, I think Chris Mack had just gotten the job. We were talking about a Xavier team that was in the Atlantic 10, that was kind of still the 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 little guy punching over his weight. Uh, we've gone through the Big East transition. We've gone through Big East tournaments at at Madison Square Garden. Uh, we've seen Xavier climb as high as like third in the AP poll during that period, win a Big East title, regular season title. And then uh, obviously we had the coaching transition a couple of years ago, the COVID season. It's been a wild, 
wild few years. I do want to make clear, though, that um, just because you and I may not be co-hosting the podcast does not mean there will not be podcast comment content that continues to come out of musketeerreport.com. I know you're kind of working through some different scenarios uh, about how this thing uh, might continue next season. And uh, I obviously will be available whenever you need me. If you need, if you find yourself bereft of a guest for a show, I certainly would be happy to step back in. So. Yeah. And that, and that's my hope that you'll still check in whenever time permits, or there's newsworthy items that we need your take on. And I'll have news coming up about what the plans are going forward with the podcast. We'll try to get on a more regular schedule for everyone, but I just want to thank you too. I mean, it's been a fun run of this thing. I think about some of the ridiculous moments that have happened from you uh, saying I looked like I was in Wild Bill's sex dungeon during a Channel 12 bit to Tino's moments on our podcast. (laughs) Um, There's just so many different things that happened along the way to us recording live shows in hotels in New York City and at Madison Square Garden and all the different audio issues we had along the way. Oh, yeah. And also uh, should mention um, while we're doing this, uh, just uh, thanks again to BJ Haley and the team at Dana Gardens who've hosted us, what, four or five times for live shows. Yeah. Uh, Certainly would hope that that would be something that will continue uh, in the new iteration of the podcast going forward. So, yeah, that was a shout out to him. That was going to be the next thing I said as well, is that that was probably the most memorable thing for me is I I remember specifically, not just once, but really every time we've done a show like that, having the conversation with you beforehand of no one is going to show up at this thing. That was always your take is there's literally going to be my family and that's it. And the first one or two, I thought you're probably right. We may be in trouble with this thing. Uh, But then after that, I I became pretty confident that people were going to show up when we held one of those events. And it was uh, surprising that there were always people there, but pretty cool to see. I mean, you know, it's one thing when you know a couple hundred people listen to this podcast via download. It's a different thing when you have, you know, 150 faces staring back at you in person while you're doing it. So thanks to everyone for always doing that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, All right. So uh, for this sort of uh, uh, final episode, um, I think our goal is going to be to do just sort of a regular season wrap up for 2020, 2021, 2020, 2020, whatever last season. And then to talk a little bit about the outlook for next year, incorporating, I mean, it's been, you know, Rick, I I think you would agree over the last couple of months, just an immense amount of news uh, breaking around the Xavier program. So a lot of things to talk about. So we'll, we'll jump right into it. Yeah. I mean, the year obviously ended with those three losses, it was the second year that this team had their destiny in their own hands. It felt like in terms of the NCAA tournament, they faltered, lost multiple must win games, kind of win in your in scenarios in the final days of the season. I guess I would just start with you, Dan, from the fans perspective, how concerning is that with Travis Steele and his program at this point, are, are you greatly concerned by this team folding in back-to-back years? Do you feel like those were two very different situations with, you know, obviously you have a Nate Johnson injury one year, you have a Paul Scruggs injury the other year, you have COVID this year as well. Where are you at on all of that and the way this team has faltered down the stretch in those must-win games? I think you kind of laid it out in framing the question where I am, which is that, you can accept and acknowledge the circumstances that surround a particular team or or particular game or whatever. But at some point, you know, you just gotta, you just gotta get past it. I mean, let's be perfectly honest. Xavier was hit harder than virtually any other major conference team this year in terms of COVID breaks, in terms of not being able to practice, in terms of being taken out of the rhythm for periods of time. It was also a challenging year from a roster standpoint. How many times did it feel like Xavier would have a two week break and then come back and then have a completely new, uh, a new rotation? I mean, you think about Ben Stanley, all of a sudden is eligible, then he's injured. You think about Adam Kunkel, all of a sudden added to the team. Uh, you think about Colby Jones being being uh, sidelined due to a COVID contact tracing. Then he's in the lineup. Then he's back out. 
Same thing with Dwan Odom. I mean, these these situations seem to spring up from time to time as the as the season went on. And then, of course, the Nate Johnson injury was a huge issue. Um, so, yes, it was a very difficult season. I think the degree of difficulty for Travis Steele, for his coaching staff, for the players this season was probably as high as it's ever been uh, in my memory as a Xavier fan. But as you say, as of March 1st, or more specifically, as of the end of the Creighton game uh, on February the 27th, it looks like Xavier was in a really good spot. And uh, the way things panned out, you know, whether it be a really disappointing first half against Georgetown, a Marquette game where they just couldn't get over the hump despite having, despite finding uh, opportunities in the second half and then a collapse in the second half against Butler in each, in each situation, Xavier just could not meet the moment for lack of a better term. And that's why they ended up not going to the postseason. Um, I think it's obviously different from last year because the COVID situation wasn't there last year. They did also have a key injury. Um, but, uh, and then the DePaul game, I, I, I don't know what you really do with that given the circumstances that were occurring in the world as that game was being played, but yeah, it is troubling. I don't think there's any way around it. It's troubling. Yeah. I, I think that's where I've been at on it the whole time as well is that I feel like there are very real reasons why this team has struggled down the stretch in back-to-back years. I can explain both of them very logically and not pin it necessarily on Travis Steele can't coach and not necessarily pin it on Xavier doesn't have good enough players. At the same time, it's not a good look. And I completely understand and agree with the people who are going to say Xavier can't miss the tournament three straight years. We don't do that at Xavier. And so when you, you kind of look at all that, it's not that I don't think Travis Steele's teams can win the big games, but I think even after his second season, Snow made the point about heading into year three, Steele's going to have the personnel to play a more open style and, and be more offensive minded. He says that's what he wants to do, but do you trust him to loosen up a little bit and not grind it down and, and go back to what he trusts and guys he feels like he can rely on in terms of defense and rebounding and all that and, and play a slower, more defensive style like he did his first two seasons. And to me, that's the biggest concern that's come out of all of this is that's pretty much what happened. If Steele was not willing to go with CJ Wiltshire at the four for extended periods or again, I don't think there was any reason to play Kiki Tandy. I thought he really struggled this year. But, you know, some fans want that. That's another option, obviously, that would have given you some more offensive firepower. There were other ways to make that lineup more conducive to scoring points, but he may not have felt as comfortable on the defensive end. And the fact of the matter is he went back to what he felt was safe and what he trusted, which was the defense. And I just feel like to a certain extent, he has recruited this team to play one way, which is small ball finesse offensive minded shoot three spread you out and yet when the season's on the line he's reverted back to wanting to be sean miller do what we do tough-minded defense win with slowing it down and being the tougher team and he just doesn't have the right guys to do that at this point the first two years it's really his only shot he had this year that wasn't the case at all and i don't think his team was built for that to me that's the biggest concern or question mark going forward is where is he at with that philosophical war that he's dealing with, I guess, in his own head of, of how to play and, and how to give his team more freedom, especially when the season is on the line. Yeah. And I mean, I, I recall uh, in one of the last shows we did, you know, snow was talking about Xavier's loss against Providence and I think against St. John's too. And in both cases, he said, you know, it was kind of a situation where, uh, you know, a coach can, uh, can lose it a little bit where they, things are kind of spiraling out of control and they go back to the security blanket. And um, I think the second half against Butler, unfortunately, was kind of the, like the, the second half of the Butler game in the Big East tournament was kind of like the ultimate example of that, where Xavier just puckered. I mean, they, they, they became extraordinarily slow offensively. They didn't really seem to have any answers or any variety they could throw at Butler, who was not a good team this year. I mean, we're talking about a 120 Ken Palm team that Xavier handled by double digits twice already that year. 
And so I, you know, scoring 19 points in the second half of that game with your season on the line. I mean, I, I, I cannot imagine how, if you're a Xavier fan, you watched that and you were like, oh yeah, I'm still 100% sure that this is going to work out. With that being said, um, you know, coming into the season, I said on this podcast, I think we all agreed, you know, this season to a certain extent is a free hit because of the, uh, because of the circumstances involved. But I think next season is going to become like, like it's, it, it really is do or die uh, from my perspective in terms of whether Travis is going to be the long-term answer at Xavier. Yeah. And that's the way I've put it to people too. That question keeps coming up to me. Uh, is this his last shot? And they frame it in the way of meaning, is he going to be fired if he doesn't make the tournament next year? And my response is always, I don't know that he's going to be fired. I, I think that's probably not the case. It depends on what happens. You know, I mean, if, the, if it's a disaster and they're out of the running for the last two weeks of the season, then yeah, he's probably going to be fired. But if it's another situation where a key player gets injured down the stretch, they're on the bubble and somehow they, they don't get in, then I my guess is being that they, they extended him out to 2024 already. He probably gets another year just with the way money works and, and all that, but he, he will have lost the fan base, the donors, anyone who is important up there, he will have lost their confidence. And at that point it will be just a matter of time before he's replaced. In my opinion, that's if he misses the tournament again this year. And, and, you know, I mean, we've talked about the, the way things have ended down the stretch of the season, kind of the, classic lemon booty syndrome that this team has had the last two years when everything's been on the line. Is that the biggest concern for you about Travis Steele going forward? Cause there's so many coaches on our message board that have all these other concerns about how bad of a coach he is. I'm not smart enough to realize all of those things for the most part. I, I think that this staff has, has done a fine job. I think Travis can X and O I think they can develop players. I, I am a little bit concerned about, what we just talked about in terms of the philosophy and what you do when things get tight and all that. But is there something else that stands out to you that you're particularly concerned about? I'll get to your question, but I wanted to talk, I wanted to double back to something you said just a second ago, which was talking about the powers that be at Xavier. I think one thing that Xavier has that I think people would be a little bit surprised by is that the big money donors at Xavier are, like, like we always hear when we talk about big programs elsewhere that the donors are completely unreasonable, that they're thrown around. Like you think about Indiana dropping $10 million to get rid of Archie Miller. I mean, that's not the sort of thing that's going to happen to Xavier. The Xavier donors, the people that sort of form that core of people that fund this program and that really are the people that ultimately are consulted on these decisions are pretty reasonable people and pretty conservative people in terms of the way that they want the program run. And I don't mean conservative, like Ted Cruz conservative. I mean, just, (laughs) I mean, just like, although some of them are, I I mean, uh, sure. Um, That was a web that you just weren't getting out of. Yeah, no, no, no. But, but I, but I mean, just in terms of like, these are not people that are, that are going crazy because Xavier didn't make the tournament three straight years. What I think the issue is, is that, as you say, if it happens again next year, I think the goodwill is gone. I think there still is a little bit of lingering, like, we want this guy to succeed at Xavier because he's a guy that was part of the staff for a long period of time. He came up with Sean. He was Chris's right-hand man. Um well, and I think big time donors know him personally. Yeah, I mean, he's made he's that a, connection. And he is a them. very, and look, and, and also he's a very affable, likable guy, engaging guy. He seems to, you know, he says the right things. He know he, he's a, he's a polished, he's, he's a person that was ready to be an, a, a high level NCAA head coach from that perspective, from the second he was hired. But I think if this thing goes haywire again this year, I think that goodwill is gone. Yeah. And I see it a lot in, in, you know, I, I don't pretend to be scientific about, you know, understanding what the pulse of the Xavier fan base is, but I think you've seen it on your message board. And when I go over to Xavier hoops, just to find out what terrible things people are saying about me in this show, uh, <laughs> which they do occasionally, I Sounds definitely, right. and when I listen to, you know, some of the other podcasts that are out there, shout out to roll blob, 
um, what you hear is, is you're starting to hear people kind of turn a little bit, like in a way that, that I don't think was true at the end of the 2019, 2020 season. Does that make sense to you? I mean, is that yeah. jive with what you're seeing? Yeah, I think there's definitely a portion of this fan base that is already out. I mean, but I think, like you said, those are probably the more unreasonable people, the more rash people, the people that will be super fired up about a coaching hire before they know anything about the guy and that are mad about his offense, even though they have no idea what's actually being ran. So, you know, in terms of the donors, the people that matter, I'm with you. I think they understand the logical reasons that surrounded the last two years. They can explain it away. They can look at this and say, okay, this past season was to an extent a free hit to use your phrase, but you're exactly right that the goodwill will be gone after this year. He does not have any more rope. He is well aware of that, by the way, as is his staff. They know what type of situation they're in. And I think you saw that this year with the way they have handled the offseason too, which we'll get into more. Um, Did you have any more thoughts about concerns specifically about Travis Steele or uh, kind of where things are headed though going forward? Or is there anything that you need to see from him, whether it's next season or just recruiting wise in general going forward, that'll make you feel more confident. Rick, I don't know. I mean, honestly, I feel like so much of the last three years has been this weird whack-a-mole situation where every time uh, one, one issue with the team seems like it's resolved, another one pops up. I mean, we saw, was it the first or the second season where like in mid-February, Xavier's 200 plus in Ken Palm adjusted defense. And it's like, what in the hell is going on? Then they sort that out and the offense goes to hell. I mean, it just, it, it, I think the one unifying thing has been the inability to shoot. I think that has been, you know, the problem since day one. And they definitely have tried their best to address that. Um, I don't know how well it's worked. I think there is an ongoing issue with there. There is an ongoing question as to whether the defensive principles that uh, that have sort of held serve at Xavier since Sean Miller's hiring are still applicable in basketball as it's played in 2021. But to me next year, it's not about any particular facet of the game. It's not that I need to see Xavier adjust and I I don't need them to take more threes or less threes or to play different lineups or to, or to integrate Kiki Tandy or to integrate young players earlier. I need them to win. Yeah. I need them to win. I need them to get to the NCAA tournament. I need to, I need them to be in the top half of the big East I need them to be competitive when they play against a Villanova, a Connecticut, a Creighton. Um, Obviously they've beaten those teams on occasion over the last few years, but I need to see that, you know, day in and day out. And when the calendar flips to March, I think I speak for most Xavier fans when I'm like, I don't want to feel like that sinking feeling like here we go again. And so that's what this season is about. It's just win. It doesn't matter what it looks like. Let me as far go as back. I'm concerned. Let me go back to the defensive statements that you mentioned because I think that was something that it comes up every year and it, it makes sense. I mean, like whenever the other team is scoring and you're not getting stops, people are going to question the type of defense you're playing. And to a certain extent, I think it's fair looking at the way Xavier is defending ball screens and the way the game is played in 2021 with the hard hedge and the recovery and everything they're doing in some ways it definitely feels like, man, there's a lot of things that have to go perfectly just for you to have a chance to guard a simple like pick and roll and replace up at the top of the key in 2021. And and every team is going to use that every time down the floor for the most part, that type of action, pick and pop, stuff like that. And they've really struggled with that. I also, because that happened this year and I was kind of talking myself down the line of thinking of you can't play that defense in 2021. It's just not going to work. And I guess if I had my opinion, like my preference, I would still say either a man-to-man defense where you are switching everything all over. And I can be talked about whether you're switching everything off the ball as well, but certainly everything on the ball in terms of screens you're switching. I think you either do that or you play a essentially the the Cronin matchup zone or the Willard matchup zone that uh, people have seen at UC over the last several years. It's now at NKU with Darren Horn. I think that defense takes you out of a lot of things in terms of ball screen stuff and other stuff you want to do. And it still allows you to match up and, and find shooters. Those 
would probably be my two preferred defenses in 2021 at this level. However, I watched the tournament and I watched other teams in the postseason closely with the way everyone was defending ball screens. Because again, I had talked myself into the idea that Xavier just wasn't doing this right. They had to make a change. And to be quite honest, I see everything still. And I see the best teams doing it all different ways. I mean, I see teams doing exactly what Xavier's doing at a very high level. And some of them don't have all that much better personnel to work with than Xavier does. So I don't know that they necessarily have to go away from the, the pack line defense and the hard hedging ball screens the way they do. But I do think there may need to be more of a commitment to the personnel you have and catering to those guys. I think that's when Chris Mack was at his best when he realized, Hey, I've got Matt Stainbrook and I just, there's nothing I can do with the way we typically defend if he's on the court and I've got another big man. So we're going to have to figure out at least the change of pace to take some people out of that. They went with the one, three, one. They went with some other stuff that year, played a little two, three or three, two at different times. And it really worked for Chris. He was able to mix and match defenses to the matchup that they were facing, especially in the postseason. It worked really, really well. And I thought it was his best year coaching at Xavier. That's always my preference is you've got to cater to your personnel to a certain extent. I know that was not Sean Miller's MO at all. I think that has greatly influenced both Chris Mack at the start of his career. And overall, I think he's kind of gone back to that at times where he feels like he needs to be very stubborn about the defensive side. And same thing with Travis Steele. I feel like he's caught in that right now. Well, let me ask you a question about that. Yeah, go ahead. Do you think that part of the reason that Chris was able to kind of remake his team, I, I think So I'll give you my thoughts and then you can tell me. I I think the fact that when Chris came in, he had a really good roster and he had a, you know, top five all-time Xavier talent, Jordan Crawford. And of course, he had to change Xavier's offense midstream that season to get the best out of Jordan Crawford. But I think the fact that he was able to go to the Sweet 16 in his first season very came very close to going further. I think that bought and, and the fact that he was a Xavier guy who had played for Pete Gillen, who was known by the fan base. I think that gave him a certain leash to experiment when the time came. And if he, if he had unsuccessful seasons because he was trying something different, people maybe weren't going to be as critical of him. I wonder if part of the problem is that Travis just doesn't have that credibility bank build up. Do you think that makes sense or is that just completely crazy? Well, here's one part of that that I would argue with, though, with Chris is I think he felt as much or more pressure than Travis ever did when you talk about those years after the Deswell situation. You know, they they said, hey, you got you landed maybe the most talented recruit we've ever seen at Xavier. We just railroaded him and ran him out of the university. But you still need to win, big fella. Like and then and things got kind of rough there. And then they made the transition to the Big East. I mean, Dan, I remember we were in year probably four or five of Chris Mack and we were in New York and we were having this conversations like this about Chris Mack of like a lot of the fan base was already off the the bandwagon. I remember even you saying something along the lines of, you know, like I'm willing to see what happens next year, but I wouldn't mind if Xavier started looking in a new direction. I'm not saying that to like hindsight no. or anything like that. I'm just saying like, I very much remember a point where Chris Mack personally felt a ton of pressure while he was at Xavier. And um, to your point about whether he felt, confident enough to change things up and and go away from what he was safe with or comfortable with. Maybe that's possible because he had to do it right away. As you alluded to, I I guess I would say if that's Travis's issue, he needs to get past that because he was hired to be the head coach and he's getting paid millions of dollars. He's the highest paid person at the university. He's got to get past it if that's his issue. And I don't think that that's necessarily uh, the issue with Travis. I think that's the issue with the perception from the outside. Um, is that because Chris had made a sweet 16 um, that there was a little, and, and then, you know, was it, I guess it was a couple of years later with the, the brawl, but they, they obviously went back to the sweet six, 16. They demonstrated they could compete at the big East level. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that what you're, re- what you're referencing, I think was the second year that Xavier was in the big East yeah. or, maybe the first year where they went to the NC state game in the, uh, with Samaja play in, yeah. um, where they barely made the tournament. And, 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 and I think 
And like Justin Martin and Samaje were their two best players. If I put myself back in that frame of mind, I think my concern at that point was, okay, Mac, really good coach in the Atlantic 10, you know, is there, is he up to it in the big East? He demonstrated that he was. Um, And maybe that's the, the argument for patience with a Travis Steele. Um, I just don't know. I don't know that I, I don't know. It's not, you know, it's not 1992. It's certainly not 1975. Coaches aren't going to get six, seven years to figure things out, especially when they take over at a program that was already successful when they got there. So I think that's the situation that we find ourselves in. I think that's, that's probably right. Um, a couple other thoughts I had just to, to wrap this up. One, I, you brought up shooting and I do think that would be another concern I have going forward. Maybe, in the immediate future about this team as next year's the last two years, I just don't think they've had enough shooting consistently to whether it's play the style that Travis Steele says he wants to play or just be efficient offensively on a consistent basis. I think they need better shooting. The other area where I would have a bit of concern is down the stretch, especially this year where this team was better and I thought they ran a lot of good stuff. I thought guys played hard and were bought in. We're doing what the st- staff tried to ask. How many, how often do you feel like Xavier had the best player on the court in the Big East? How often they have one of the two best players on the court in the Big East. That would be my other concern. And I don't know if that one's easily fixable. I also don't even know if it's necessarily a Travis Steele issue. I think Xavier's recruiting as well as Xavier has ever recruited. The problem is they're in the Big East now. For real. Right. Not just like they're starting out in the Big East. They got a few years. Like, this is it. This is what it's like to be in the Big East every year. You've got other schools that can bring in five stars. Not frequently, but they have. You've got other schools that regularly land top 100 guys. They land bigger names in the transfer portal now. Xavier just doesn't have the best player most often. when, And that's, that's understandable. Like, I don't think anyone at Xavier in terms of the administration, the president, the athletic director, all that, when they moved to the Big East, I don't think they expected that to be the case. In fact, I think a lot of fans, if you you found out what the actual kind of mission statements were and where Xavier expected to be in the Big East, you'd be maybe a little disappointed. Like they, they expect to be a top half of the Big East type program. It's not, mm-hmm. The goal isn't to dominate the Big East and win it. Every, I mean, of course it is, but they don't expect realistically to dominate the Big East and win it every year like they did in the A-10. That's just not going to happen, at least not at this stage of where things are at for both Xavier and the conference. So that would be another concern I have is even though I think the staff can recruit and they've done a pretty good job of it by Xavier standards, I think there's still another step up before they are a clear cut best well, team in the Big East type. Program. I'll tell you what, I have the uh, I have the results from this year. Let me just run through the Big East teams that Xavier played and you tell me who the best player in the court was. OK. So Marquette. I would say uh, the the freshman is Dawson Garcia. Talent. Yeah, Dawson Garcia. I mean, Creighton. It's obviously Zagorowski, right? Yep. Seton Hall, Mamalukeshvili. Yep. Is he better than Scruggs? I yes. think so. Yes. St. John's. I think you got to. I think maybe there's an argument there. Yeah, there's an argument. Although I think I would probably take Julian Champagny. Yeah. If I'm drafting first. I mean, Providence, obviously Duke is better than anyone on Xavier. I think Butler is the team that Xavier, that Scruggs the best player on the floor. Without a doubt. Yeah. And Freeman is probably the next best. You know, they played UConn without book night, but. Um, but that was the night that Cole was ridiculously good and the best player right. in the country. And then most of these are runbacks and then Georgetown. Yeah. And it, and it could probably be argued that Xavier has the best player or two in that game the problem is they they also need to play like it too you know like chudier belay or however you say his name was great down the stretch for georgetown and in the game against xavier late i think he was probably the best player on the court right so i don't know that i would say that every game but you know in that game he had like a double double with 16 points i think so yeah so i think your point is correct i mean if you cycle back uh three four seasons to uh, you know, Trayvon Blewett was very often the best player on the floor, if not almost all the time. Um, so that makes a lot of sense, Rick. And I think that is, a, that is and as we look forward to next season, uh, I think that continues to be a potential a concern. concern. Yeah. yeah. Um, certainly, though, the, the roster 
as we've seen across the country um, with the changes to the transfer rule, with COVID, with the extra year, et cetera, been a lot of turmoil basically everywhere. But Xavier's roster has actually come out of this. I mean, I guess if you were looking at the outgoing, I think losing CJ Wilcher in the transfer portal, I think for a lot of people, for a lot of people, they view that as a pretty significant loss. I think it's fair to say. Yeah. And I think that one's especially, it's more of a long-term loss. And I think again, going back to that speaks to where the staff is at right now. You know, if this was, if Travis Steele had just come off an NCAA tournament appearance, maybe won a game, I think there's a decent chance they may be asked Nate Johnson to, if he wants to play another year of college basketball, do it somewhere else because you're going to lose CJ Wiltshire if that happens and they know it. But this year, uh, you're going to take an extra year of Nate Johnson instead of four more of CJ Wiltshire in this case because you got to win right now and Nate Johnson gives you the best chance of doing so. Well, and obviously Nate Johnson coming back was a little bit unexpected um, coming into the offseason. Paul Scruggs coming back, on the other hand, was something that we thought was probably not going to happen, maybe maybe as of January 1. But as the season crept on, we heard more and more rumors that this might be happening. And obviously it was confirmed a couple weeks ago. Um, So getting Scruggs and Johnson back – means that Xavier is going to be very old next year, which generally has correlated to being successful in college basketball in recent years. So let's talk about some of the other changes, maybe in the front court, obviously big transfer addition uh, in uh, Jack uh, Nunji from Iowa. What can you tell us about him? Where do you think he fits in? Yeah, well, so Nate Johnson, Paul Scruggs are back. Jason Carter has returned to Ohio. Brian Griffin Griffin. has hired an agent. Okay. Uh, Daniel Ramsey is headed to Tennessee Tech, and CJ Wilcher is going to Nebraska. Kiki Tandy entered the transfer portal. He's now staying at Xavier. So that's where all the transactions are at. And you you mentioned the the latest edition of Jack Nunji from Iowa. I think this is about as well as, as Xavier could have done in the transfer portal for what they needed. And the reason I say that is because the two things Xavier needed in the front court, if they were trying to add, whether it be a four or just another body in general, they had to find someone who could either shoot and really help them offensively or someone who was going to make them better defensively, give them more size and help them rebound and protect the rim a little bit. Nunji is kind of the best of both worlds. I don't know that he's great in, on either side necessarily, but I think he can give you some of both help spread the floor, give you an upgrade over Jason Carter offensively. He's very different defensively, but for what you kind of need alongside Zach Fremantle, he gives you the extra length, the added rebounding, a little bit of rim protection. Whereas Jason Carter was you know, 6'8 on a good day, an okay rebounder who played hard, but just didn't have that extra size to make you bigger around the basket like Jack Nungy is going to. So in that regard, I think it was a good find. The big concern with Jack Nungy is the injury history. He played right. out his ACL uh, a season ago. This year, he played most of the season, played 22 of, I think they're 27 games or 28 games, whatever it was, and then tore his meniscus in the, the final few weeks. So he's, he's on pace to be back in plenty of time for the season. Meniscus tear isn't that serious of a surgery necessarily. People usually recover it from it just fine. The big concern, though, is back-to-back years, the same knee. Where is he at, and, and how will he hold up physically? He's not the most athletic guy in the world to begin with. Speed, explosiveness, not his game. But what he does do is he, he played behind Luca Garza as their backup five, but he also played sometimes alongside him at the four. They played a lot of zone when he was in the game because he gives them great length, obviously, and he can rebound out of area really well. But on the offensive end, it's a lot of picking and popping. He's always had the reputation as a shooter. In high school, he was known as a shooter. That's what he was. He got to Iowa, shot 33% as a freshman big, which not bad at all, really. Um, And then obviously he's kind of had those few, he had the year where he sat out as a red shirt. He had the year where he blew out his ACL and missed the whole season. He came back this year and he shot 28% coming off the bench. So that doesn't inspire a whole lot of confidence about what he's done as a three-point shooter. I think everyone that has played alongside him, that has coached him in the past, and now Xavier, all believe that he's going to shoot much better this season. Now, will that be 35% or better? 
I don't know, but I certainly think he'll be more respectable than the 28% he shot this year and certainly better than what Jason Carter has given you from the perimeter the last few years. He's a great passer. I mean, real, that might, might be the best part of his offensive game. He can really pass. He cuts well himself. He finishes really well around the rim. Um, he was he actually finished on close twos this year. He finished at 68%, which was just 0.8 behind Luca Garza, National Player of the Year for Iowa, who's at 68.8%. So they're very similar in that regard, how they're finishing around the rim in the post. He's comfortable with the ball in his hands. He'll dribble it a little bit, handle it. But he's not like a guy who's going to break you down off the dribble and drive past you a lot. Maybe one or two dribbles after a bad closeout when he's eyeing the rim. And he'll go by and, and shoot something mid-range or, or get to the post and then work in the post. But that's kind of his game. Defensively, they're going to have to figure out what they're going to do on ball screens with him and Zach Fremantle both on the court at the same time. The hard hedge thing just I can't see it working in this case. I don't know if they're going to implement some drop coverages or if they're going to – uh, go to a little more zone look and change it up sometimes. I, I don't know. I think they'll have to do something different, but I think it's a really nice ad. Yeah, and I mean, I think when you look at the roster as a whole, Paul Scruggs has emerged as a potential all-league type player. He was definitely the team leader last year. Uh, he came up big for the team a lot of times down the, in games that they had to have, and getting him back for another year is a huge deal. Nate Johnson, obviously, when he was healthy, was an important part of this team. You know, he's not a guy that wasn't, you know, over the over the course of the season, maybe he wasn't a huge impact player on a night-by-night basis, but when he was, he was a huge decision-maker for Xavier. Getting those two guys back is, is obviously massive. Dwan Odom and Colby Jones demonstrated last year that they are more than capable of playing at this level. I think it is perfectly – reasonable to to say that both of them have the potential to be all league type players fair yeah i think that's right i mean i i think that's the expectation from the coaching staff right now if you were to ask them and zach Fremantle is at that level as well you add uh nunji who's a player that got minutes at a at a you know a top, top 10, 10 program. team yeah yeah and then you know there's some there's some wild cards that are in there as well. Is Adam you know can Adam Kunkel uh, demonstrate a little bit more consistency with his shot? You know what role, if any, does Kiki Tandy have on this on this team? Um, I think that's definitely still up in the air. Uh, and then Deontay Miles, which has always kind of been the one. wild card, is yeah. uh, is he a guy that's going to be ready this season to step in? take up some minutes and start demonstrating the humongous ceiling that he's got. So when you look at it holistically, and I know that we said this a little bit last year, but it's hard to look at this roster and say that if Xavier misses the tournament in the 2021-22 season, that it won't be extremely disappointing from my perspective. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think most people would have said it was disappointing that they didn't make it last year. But I will go back to even our preseason podcast where we <laughs> go through the schedule and we pick the records. We were pretty close on that team. We we had some concerns about that team going in. We mentioned the shooting. I listened to this podcast a, a few weeks ago after the season ended to see what our predictions were and just see how close they were. It was interesting to hear. We were more down on this team than I think anyone realized we never expected them to have the start that they did. We thought they'd lose a few more games early and and be on the bubble a little bit more from the beginning. I think the disheartening part about last season was the way it finished because they were in position to, you know, easily get into the tournament had they won a couple games down the stretch and they just couldn't even find a single win to stay on the bubble basically. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think going into this year, the one thing that a lot of fans lose sight of is players get better or at least they should so having all these guys back another year a year older think about the step forward that Zach Fremantle took from his freshman year to his sophomore year if he makes any type of similar jump this year he's going to be really damn good yeah. you could say the same thing about the, the freshman that you mentioned that Colby and Dwan if they make a jump this year it's gonna be two pretty nice players of sophomores that to go along with what you already have so this is the year for Travis Steele. There's, I'm not going to say that Xavier has the most talented roster in the Big East because that just wouldn't be true. We've already mentioned that there's going to be a lot of games where they may not have the best player even this year. But with their depth, their experience, and just the fact that they've been around each other, they, they're, they have chemistry, they know the system, all of that amounts to a team that you have to think is top four in the Big East right now. 
Well, let me ask you this question, and this may be uh, a place to, to maybe move toward wrapping it up, but um, if there's a guy on Xavier's roster right now, because you talk about guys getting better, if there's a guy on Xavier's roster right now who could make that leap to the point that that player could be the best guy on the floor in certain games this year, who would it be? Colby Jones. I don't yeah, even think I, it's I don't even think it's debatable. I mean, Zach Fremantle is obviously already close. I mean, there's a lot of games where he was the best guy on the floor or at least close to it. He was Xavier's best player this past year. So I think he is he can be the best player on the court, certainly. But if you're looking for another guy to make the jump and get himself into that conversation regularly, it's Colby Jones. Fremantle this season had games where he would absolutely fill up the box score. And still, at the end of the day, you would look at it and you would say, man, I feel like you could have done more. And it's crazy. There'd be games where he'd score 27 points and you would you would kind of look at the at the film and be like, man, Zach should have had 40 in that game. Just because of how good he is at getting into spots where he can finish. Yeah. Um, so and I, I think we I think we have to be careful, too, that. This year went south a little bit, and Zach became like a referendum on everything that was wrong with the team, and people kind of got into bashing Zach Lock. And he, he had his deficiencies. There were issues defensively for certain. Um, there were times where he just seemed like he was taking plays off. But Zach was pretty damn good this year, too. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, there were times where no one else on the team seemed to be able to score. Um, so, yeah, I mean, my – I guess – as I look forward to the next season, uh, I'm optimistic that Xavier will be much improved from last year. I certainly am optimistic about being able to be in the arena every once in a while. But I think in terms of the overall arc of the program, and more specifically, the career of Travis Steele, who's the current head coach, I think I'm still a little bit, um, I'm still a little bit uh, tentative or a little bit um, unclear on which way this thing is going to go. And I think this season will go a long way toward making that clear. Do you have a starting lineup that you like out of the, the current roster? Wow. Um, it's tough because I think if I tell you who I think should start, there's going to be like seven guys. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know that, that's, I guess, that makes it interesting. There's also the issue of, if I just give you who I think is the best player at each position, I feel like I'm going to end up with a roster that doesn't have enough shooting. So I guess as I look at it, just in, in my mind, I, I, I think you have to have Dwan Odom's playmaking at the one. Um, I think you need Scruggs and Johnson, both in the Scruggs, Johnson, Jones, and Fremantle, I guess is what I would do. And I'm not sure that that works defensively, but I don't know how else you construct a starting lineup that has enough scoring in it. You know what I mean? Or that has enough shooting in it. Um, I, I like that lineup. I, in a lot of ways, I think there's a chance that playing Colby at the four is this team's best way of playing going forward as he continues to get stronger and tougher. I thought he already showed glimpses of being able to do it this past season. However, if I had to guess right now to kind of solve the issue you're talking about with the scoring and lineups, everything like that, I think it's Paul Scruggs, Nate Johnson, Colby Jones, Jack Nungy, Zach Fremantle. That would be my guess if you had to start right now. Now, it creates an issue with Dwan. I'd certainly be worried about not starting Dwan. I was also told that it was brought to Dwan before Paul Scruggs ever even mentioned coming back and saying, and, and they said, hey, would you be comfortable if Paul does come back? Are you okay with that? My assumption is he understands that means he'd be competing for minutes with Paul Scruggs at mm -hmm. that point. So I would assume he'd be okay with it, knowing that he's still going to play 20 plus minutes a game, obviously. Uh, but if I had to guess right now on uh, April 16th, I think that would be my five. And, and again, I don't know what you do defensively with that lineup either because of your front court. So, well, and I think the lineup that I, I talked about there, the, the thing that I do like about it is that all four of the outside guys are good defenders. Yeah. Just switch um, everything. You can yeah. absolutely switch everything. You can put a little pressure on. And the other thing is, I think with the exception of Johnson, if you think about Jones, Odom and Scruggs, any one of those three could play the one on a given possession. Yeah. Um, so you can show some different looks offensively. So that's, that's probably the way I would be leaning, but um, 
what you talked about with Nunji alongside Fremantle up, up front would alleviate some of the issues Xavier had with um, occasionally with rebounding last year. Yeah, I just wonder how defensively that would work. So yeah, it'll be fascinating to see. And I mentioned this on a, a podcast last week. There's part of me that can be convinced that while Jack Nunji won't be as good as Jason Carter defensively, he's definitely different. In some ways, he might make Xavier as a team better defensively because he adds the overall length, clogging things up, taking some things away, and then also being able to protect the rim a little bit and rebound better. It'll. I'm interested to see how it plays out if Nunji is the four alongside Freeman or however you work that out, but just those two guys playing together in the front court will be something interesting to watch, in my opinion, this year. And I think it's going to be a big key for Xavier's success is figuring out how to make that front court work because then you also have Deontay and everybody wants to know how does Deontay look? What's he going to bring this year? And the answer right now is, I don't know. I didn't get to see him this entire year and he really hasn't done much before that. So I just have no idea. The staff is still really high on him. They made a really hard pitch to make sure he was aware that they still wanted him and they, they have plans for him going into this year. So We'll see how he does. It, it'll be interesting to see if Cesar Edwards is able to try to take some of those minutes away from him or if Deontay has clear-cut the, the third big man in the rotation. And you have Elijah Tucker as well who's coming in, who um, you know Snow certainly was very high on um, yeah. and believed that it would be very difficult for Xavier to keep him off the floor even as a true freshman. So, yeah. And the I only mean, reason I didn't – I mentioned – Cesar before that is just I view Cesar more as like the fit five you know, no, no, center I, spot as well as Tucker's more of like a hybrid four type guy right right I get it all right well um I think that kind of draws us to a close so Rick I'd just say uh you know uh it's been a pleasure uh recording this show with you I wish uh we were able to do it on a more regular basis but uh it's always been great to uh talk to you and uh and to to do this podcast send it out into the internet waters uh, appreciate all the folks who have downloaded and listened over the last nine years. Um, you know, it's been a lot of fun. Gotten to meet a lot of cool people through this thing. Uh, gotten to, uh, to to see some games, go some interesting places, see Xavier play in cool venues. And uh, it's been Sat a lot of fun. Sat on Press Row a few times. Sat on Press Row a couple of times. Uh, I was not, by the way, the person that stole the beers out of the Centos Center uh, <laughs> refrigerator. I want to make that clear. That was um, before my time even. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so I appreciate it. I'm looking forward to seeing uh, what your next steps are going to be with this show or with the new iteration of the show. Um, and certainly we'll look forward to appearing on that show in a guest capacity. So thanks buddy. Appreciate it. Yeah, Dan, thank you so much. Can't thank you enough. The vocabulary of the entire message board will suffer as a result of you not being a regular on this podcast going forward, but, uh, certainly we'll try to do you proud and keep it going in some form or fashion. I'll have news coming up about that over the next few weeks as I iron out some of those details with, with others. But, um, obviously there's some other things going on with prospects and, and, uh, coaches changes, things like that. Jonas Hayes just got promoted to associate head coach. So check the message board for all those updates as we go in farther into the off season, more recruiting information coming out as well over the next few weeks as coaches are, are allowed to get back on the road and start having guys on visits and things of that nature. So for this edition of the Dana Victory podcast available on musketeerreport.com and all of your favorite streaming platforms for Dan, I'm Rick. Thanks for listening, everyone.